great, great job. Thanks, Josh. Well, good morning. Welcome to Emmaus Church. My name's Nathan. Happy to see you here. Raise your hand if you'd like a Bible. We'll hand one to you. We're going to be in Isaiah, which is about the middle of the Bible, one of the prophets from the Old Testament. And if you're seated on the edge of um, a row here, would you grab a basket and hand it down? And if this is your first time here or you'd like to hand off a prayer request or contact information, there are cards in these baskets and pens and you're welcome to fill out a card. We'll collect them again in a few minutes uh, when I'm finished preaching and um, that's just an easy way to communicate if you have something specific today. Uh, We send out a newsletter each week, just a quick three things happening um, in the church. And uh, that's the primary use for the, um, the email that you would hand off, all right? Great. Well, welcome. I hope you had a phenomenal weekend. Well, long weekend, Thanksgiving break. And um, I hope that you um, are both sensing a, a, a level of peace and also kind of longing for a peace that's different from that which has been sort of shared on a popular level over the last a few days in our culture, which seems almost to be like a hurry up so you don't miss out. Uh, you're, you're about to make the worst decision of your life unless you come to this place at this time. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's like a celebration that's causing us to not want to celebrate in some, in some ways. But today, it's Advent here. And, and it's like the sense of like a big exhale. At least that's the way I feel about, about Advent. It's how I'm feeling. Like I, like I sat down after a really full season next to a burning fire in the living room and somebody that I love and trust comes up and hands me a, you know, a hot cup of tea and, and says, let me just tell you a story. There's just all these stories being told. There's all these perspectives like jockeying for my attention. There's all these claims of importance and all of these differing viewpoints just swirling around constantly. And it's like, this is the season that's like a good friend that comes up and says, shh. Let me just tell you a story. Let me tell you a familiar story. Let me tell you the story that your heart knows and your heart is longing for and you need to experience again. You need to rehearse again. Let me just tell you this story. If you're part of the church here, uh, you know we've been pushing pretty hard all fall. We did a 10-week series on emotional health, which was rugged for some. It was, it was intense. We leaned into pain We tried to uh, encourage one another to deal with it, to process it, and then we capped that with a two-week series on politics, just for fun, Um, uh, talking about creed and community. And I know, uh, just a personal statement here, I know that I've said a lot of words this fall. I'm uh, I'm very aware of that. Um, And I know that I've been talking about some really personal things. I feel very very keenly that I have waded into waters that are charged with emotion and opinion and pain and hope. And uh, whenever you're talking about these kinds of issues with more than just one person at a time, you run the risk of all kinds of misunderstanding um, and, and, uh, and overgeneralizing the simplicity or the complexity of some things. And I think you know this, but my true desire is that the teaching ministry here at Emmaus is provocative, that it challenges careful thought, good self-reflection. Of course, I also want it to be encouraging and comforting. Ultimately, I want it to honor God. I hope to be faithful to Scripture. Um, I want it to be wise and helpful in real life. 
And so because, and ultimately I want it to be transformative. I want this, to, this part of our church gathering to be something that helps you to grow and to become the person that God has created you to be. And because of that, we'll continue to lean into difficult issues. We'll continue to press in to stuff that's kind of hot button at times or at least challenging because we just can't afford, I'm not willing nor am I interested in just kind of doing this sort of safe stuff because I want it to make a difference. I want it to be challenging. And so with that comes this request, that you would pray for me as I preach and when I prepare to preach, that I would be faithful to what the Word says, that I would be wise in in what I'm doing, and that this would be uh, a ministry that would be marked with humility and that it would be helpful to you. So as we kick off this Advent season today, I'm just grateful. This is a time in the year where I'm especially grateful for the wisdom and the rhythm of the church the wisdom and the rhythm of the church. See, we've just finished the longest season of the Christian calendar. It's the season called ordinary time. It lasts more than half of the year. And it's a season in which we are invited to focus on just the day-to-day matters of faith, kind of the practical living out of the challenges of following Jesus, just the normal stuff that makes up life in community and life in our families. It's this long season of responding to the two big celebrations of the spring, which are the the, um, resurrection of Jesus at Easter and then the, the season of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So these two big life-giving realities, the resurrection of Christ, the filling of the Holy Spirit, we then spend the rest of the year, all summer and fall, responding to these things hoping that they, these realities will make a difference in the way we live on a, on a practical level. Um, and, and then it's just this ordinary transformation that takes place in this, in this process. We respond to these life-giving truths by making all these kinds of hard adjustments. Um, it's the hard work of just following Christ. It's the hard work of being in community together. And, and today, now, we circle all the way back to essentially the beginning, as Rick said. And we come back to the source of the whole story. And the invitation is to start here because we need to be reminded where this whole thing begins. And and I'm really grateful for that today. In other words, I'm grateful for a calendar that calls me back to the place of its source, to, to a place of grounding. Now, let me, a couple other comments as we begin. One of the oldest discipleship tools in the church is this three year curriculum. And it's made up entirely of scripture and it's organized around the church calendar. So it starts, at Chris, it starts at Advent right now today and then goes to Christmas and then Epiphany and then Lent, the season of anticipation and preparation for Easter and then Pentecost. And this three year, it's, this, it's, the, it's the, um, the scriptures from the Bible organized in a three year cycle. So over a three year period of time, you would cover the whole Bible. You would also cover the Psalms three times. You'd cover them every year. You'd cover the Gospels three times. So you go through the Gospels every year. It's called the lectionary. And there are, there are a few varieties of these, of these lectionaries or these discipleship tools made up of Scripture. Uh, one of their, and they're helpful for a variety of reasons, but one of them is that it, it reminds you like a trusted friend of the story that you need to hear. This is the time of the year, it says, essentially. You need to hear this story again. You've been focusing on all of these other things, and now it's time to come back and to read this story again. The Old Testament readings for Advent this year in this three-year lectionary cycle are readings from the prophet Isaiah. And through these passages that we'll cover in the next couple weeks, you're going to hear the people of God or you're going to hear the church being called to be a glimpse, to be a picture of the future to the world. In other words, to demonstrate what heaven looks like here on earth. 
Uh, through these passages, the church is invited to demonstrate or be a picture or to model or to live out a different way of living, a future reality, but to live it out here and now. The prophet Isaiah is painting a picture, in other words, of what is to come. Um, and his point is not just to encourage us to hope and wait for the future, but his point is to encourage us to begin to live into these realities here and now so that we usher in the peace of Christ, the kingdom of God, here and now. How? By living differently until he comes. So here's the first of the readings that we'll cover from Isaiah uh, this Advent season. This is from Isaiah chapter 2. I'll put it on the screen, and uh, you can also see it in context in the Bible if you like. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 2. Here's verse 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. So what, here's what's happening to begin. Isaiah is envisioning this time in history when all of these competing worldviews, all of these conflicting religious claims, all of this confusion and division that characterizes our culture right now, he's envisioning this time in which all of this confusion is clarified. He's envisioning this time when all of these conflicting claims are clarified. And the picture or the image that he uses to communicate this is that of many mountains. So imagine just like you're in the Appalachians or you're someplace where there's just row after row after row of mountains and all these mountains are representing different claims of truth, different perspectives on reality. And Isaiah foresees a time when this one mountain will rise above the rest. This one hill will be exalted and lifted high above the rest. And out of the plurality and the confusion and the contradiction will come this realization that this is life-giving truth. There it is. And instead of this millennia of confusion, now for once there will be this sense of clarity. That's the way to go. That's the life-giving truth right there. He continues by saying this in verse 3. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, Verse 4, he will judge between the nations. He will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation any longer, nor will they train for war anymore. So as this mountain, this singular mountain, rises and is revealed above all, people from all over the world, this is in the vision of Isaiah, people all over the world will be drawn to it, more specifically, they will be drawn to the God of Jacob. Jacob is Abraham's grandson. The lineage of the Hebrew people goes Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. He has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So he's essentially talking about the God of Israel. And it's this God, the God of Jacob, who becomes Israel, who will be revealed as in a way that draws all nations to him, not just the nation of Israel anymore. We won't talk about him as the God of Israel anymore because um, he will be the God of all nations. He'll be this re revelation of this life-giving truth and all people who look to the one true God will say, teach us your ways so we may, we may walk in your paths. 
So this is the image that the prophet Isaiah, uh, Isaiah sees and describes. And then, even though this vision hasn't really happened yet, he calls the people of God to live as though it has, to begin to adjust the way they live to anticipate this coming reality. In other words, he's saying this is where the world is headed, so live like this now. Here's what he says in verse 5. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So the picture that Isaiah paints, at least here in chapter 2, and we'll look again at chapter 11 and, um, and next week, but here in chapter 2, he's, he's picturing this picture of peace. He's envisioning this new level of peace. And the image is so rich and so powerful that this is what I want to focus on today, specifically verse 4. Let me read it to you again. It's probably familiar to many of you. He will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares. They will beat their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. I just want to point out two dynamics this morning. Two dynamics of this vision, which I think can be very helpful as we strive or hope or pray to experience real peace in our lives. Here's the two dynamics. First is what God does, and the second is what we do. Okay, that's what I want to talk about this morning. First, what God does. According to this vision, God settles disputes. That's his, that's his job. That's what he does in this vision. Now, I think this is really helpful, and I think it's really challenging. Here's why it's, it's a hopeful idea. The idea is hopeful because it carries this sense of justice. It carries this sense of the right thing will be done. And one of the more difficult, the reason this is hopeful is because one of the more difficult elements of modern day disputes, disagreements, conflicts, whether they happen in actual courts of law or just the court of public opinion, is the increasing suspicion that justice is not being done. Am I right? That there's some sort of corruption that is affecting the outcome. That people are getting away with something they shouldn't get away with. So Isaiah's vision of God settling the disputes feels good. Because all the, all the prejudice is gone in this case. And all the hidden agendas are, are out of here. And all of the supposed backroom deals that happen are null and void. That's all, that's all past tense. Because now it is God who is settling this. Do you remember when you were a kid and you were playing outside with your cousins and your siblings and your friends and you were having this great game and then this dispute arose and it threatened to just, uh, just stop the whole game? And you just couldn't get any farther? And then some one of them, usually like your friend's kid brother who knew he didn't have any power in the first place, he would, he would appeal to a higher power. He would say, I'm going to tell mom. That's what he would do. And he would just like stop the whole thing and he would just go to this, uh, make this appeal because you couldn't get past it. You couldn't solve the dispute. And so there was this need to appeal to a higher power, somebody else who would, uh, who would settle the dispute. Sometimes you need mom to settle the dispute and then you can get on with things. It's so interesting to me that Isaiah's vision is not a vision of peace that comes when one race conquers another. Isaiah's vision for peace is not a vision of peace that comes when one nation becomes so powerful that it overwhelms all other nations. That's the peace of Rome that we talked about a couple weeks ago, right? That's this peace that comes out of control and fear. Isaiah's vision is, is not that. Uh, his vision is something totally different. Instead, it's a vision where all races and all nations at the same time are drawn to the one true God, and it's God who settles the disputes. It's God who settles them. 
That's God's job. So the notion that God sets, uh, that God sets things right is, is a hopeful idea. It's a hopeful vision. And it's challenging. It's challenging because if this is something that God does, if this is God's job, then it means it's not my job, right? And, this, and when I say it's challenging, I really do mean that it's challenging. In other words, it's difficult. There's gray area here, and here's what I mean. Because there are situations in your life, there are situations where you are in a position to settle disputes. Because it's a dispute in your family, and you're the parent, so it's your job to settle it. Or there's a dispute in your business, and you're the boss, so it's your job to settle it. Or there's a dispute on your team, and you're the captain, or you're the coach, and so it's your job to settle that dispute. But there are also all kinds of situations where, so in those situations, it's like God delegates his dispute-settling authority to you. He gives you that authority in those communities, those circles, and that's now your job. But in many other situations, God has not delegated that job to you. He has not delegated it to you. And we act like he has, which is what makes it really challenging. Most of the conflicts that you and I get tied into are those in which there is no clear position of authority. There is no one to appeal to. There is no mom to go to and say, would you decide who is right and who's wrong? That's why it's complicated. Only God can settle this dispute, right? It's his job, which means it's not your job, which means this dispute may not get resolved in the time you wish it would, in the way that you wish it would, and you and I, here's the important part, you and I are going to have to learn to live at peace within the tension of an unresolved dispute. That's why it's challenging. So it's really hopeful, and yet it's also really challenging. I was listening to a, a philosophy lecture recently, and this is what the speaker said. I wrote it down. I thought it was so good. He said, war is not conflict. I'm thinking, I thought, what? War is not conflict? What are you talking about? And, and then he clarified by saying this, war is the inability to deal <laughs> with conflict. Right. This is good, this is good, because real relationships are full of conflict. Are they not? Real relationships are full of conflict. Some relationships have a lot of conflict, and that is not necessarily a bad thing. This actually may be a good thing, because the conflict gives you an opportunity to submit to another person, to not get your way, to put others, somebody else's opinion above your own opinion. Somebody else can be first. You can serve somebody else. Conflict isn't the problem. It's the inability to deal with conflict that is the problem. Now we have war. Now we have the intensity of division that breaks up families and breaks up churches. So the first dynamic of Isaiah's vision is both challenging and hopeful. God will settle the disputes. The second part of the vision is even more helpful to me personally. Isaiah says it like this. He will judge between the nations, settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation anymore, uh, nor will they train for war anymore. So the first part of the vision is God's job. God settles disputes. The second part of the vision is is our job. We work for restoration. We work for restoration. Let me show you this with this image. The image that Isaiah uses is powerful. In fact, it's still used in speeches today. It was used all over the political season that we just kind of worked through. 
It's used in songs still today. They will beat their swords into plowshares. Plowshares are like a farming tool. So you take the sharp end of the sword, you bend that, that becomes the part of the plow that cuts the ground, right? Notice two things about this image. First, they don't actually lay down their weapons in Isaiah's vision. Isn't that interesting? They repurpose them. They don't lay them down. They repurpose them. The big idea that we're talking about is this idea of peace this morning. And peace is really about power. How you use your power is a big factor in determining whether or not you experience peace. Weapons, in this case, are just a symbol of power. I recently heard a political scientist say that the Russian-United States relationship is the most critical in the world because these are the two nations that have the nuclear capacity to destroy the whole thing. So whether it's swords and spears that you're talking about, or it's bombs that you're talking about, or it's words that you're talking about, or it's um, custody that you're talking about, whatever your weapon is, that's, that's the, the point is it's a tool of power. And peace has to do with how we decide to use our power. So what I want you to notice, and I think it's really important, and I think it's really rare for our culture to get this. The solution is not to deny your power. The solution is not to lay it down and walk away from it. The solution is to use your power for good. That's the solution. The solution is to repurpose your tools of power from tools of destruction to tools of, of uh, construction, of restoration. Don't abandon your sword, in other words. Beat it into a plow. Okay. In other words, if you're in a position of power, use that position of power to heal, to protect, to provide for those who are in need. That's probably why you're in that position of power in the first place. That's probably God's intent for your having some kind of authority, resources, skill set, influence, whatever kind of power, whatever that looks like for you. I would argue that the only reason you've got that, the only reason you've been given that by God is because he wants you to use it for good. He wants you to restore what's broken with that. Next, we're gonna, next week, we'll hear another image that's similar, carries a similar idea, this idea that a lion will lay down with the lamb. Let me just touch on that briefly because it, re, it, it, it uh, reinforces what I'm trying to say about the weapon thing. It says the lion will lay down with the lamb, right? It doesn't say the lion will become a lamb. It doesn't say that the lion will stop being a lion. They were created to be lions. They're not supposed to stop being lions. In the vision, they just use their lion power to protect instead of to eat, right? The lamb. So Isaiah's vision is that the powerful use, the powerful use their power in the way that God initially intended for them to use their power. Maybe you don't feel like you have power, but you have resources. Some of you can move the world with the money that you have. You have skill sets. You have um, restored areas of pain in your life that you can either lord over people or you can go back into the trenches and help people out. You all have all kinds of ways to use weapons for either good or for, for bad. And that's the hope, is that you use, to you use the power to provide and to shelter and not to further corrupt out of some sort of selfish motive. Sometimes it feels like the Christian message of peace has just been just absolutely wrecked by this sort of pansy, passive, be nice to everybody, George McFly, no backbone, you know, kind of mess. That's not the, that's not the Christian message of peace. 
It's a mischaracterization. The peaceful vision of the prophets, like Isaiah, is the vision of real power. Like, oh, that is some serious, that is actual power, but it is being used to protect. It's being used to heal. It's being used to provide. It's being used to advocate and to restore. I just think this is really important. Isaiah doesn't say they'll lay down their swords. He says they will repurpose them, right? They'll repurpose them. Let me tell you a story. I was in, um, I was in Thailand in January. I was teaching at a school. And um, one early in the week, I went out to the street market with my friend, my host, and we're just having food on the, out in the street in, in northern Thailand. And I see this, uh, this white woman and her daughter. They, they stood out like I did. Uh, they were taller than everybody else, and, and, and they were clearly not from Thailand. So we went up and we met them, and my friend actually knew them. They were from Texas. And uh, they t- it turns out, I said, why are you in Thailand? Why, what are you doing here? And they said, well, her husband, the, the teenage girl's dad, worked with an organization, the name I'll put on the screen because we're recording this, and, he, and this organization did all kinds of restorative work in the countries, the five countries that are, are situated ab- right above Thailand. Easy access from Thailand. Um, this organization has a website. You can read about the medical work that they do. You can read about the discipleship training that they do. You can read about the educational work that they do. It's really inspiring. What is surprising on the website is this tab that's called In Memorandum. And there's the pictures of the missionaries who have been killed doing the work that they do. And what doesn't appear on the website is actually the most exciting thing, at least to me, about what they do. It's not on the website, but it's, the, it's, it's what this man from Texas was involved in. It's a group of dedicated um, individuals who are protecting vulnerable villages in areas in the world which are frequently the subject of attacks, often by radicalized uh, groups. And over dinner, I asked my friend about this, how this actually works out. And he says, yeah, it's these bunch, it's these U.S. Marines and Army Rangers who sneak behind the lines, cross the country borders, carrying everything they have, armed to the teeth. They get some sort of intel, they get some sort of information that allows them to know that this village is about to be attacked, and they set up a perimeter around the village, and they evacuate, they help escape the women and the children and the people who are there. And if the attack comes before the escape is finalized, they provide a shield. They provide the protection so that those who are attacking the people have to go through them first. (laughs) The creed on their website reads, do not be led by comfort or fear, but be led by love. Isn't that good? Do not be led by comfort or fear, but be led by love. So these are, in in a very, very literal sense, very powerful men with very powerful weapons who have been trained for war, but they are using their power, in this case, to shelter and to save, um, not to further destroy. They haven't laid down their weapons, but they have repurposed them. See what I'm saying? Um, they're, They're taking their power into places that few are willing to go in order to defend the defenseless. Their desire... The way they position themselves is as a peacemaking group or a peacekeeping force. Now, you may not agree with the method. I understand that. You may not agree with the method. 
but it struck me as a rather dramatic example of using power to restore in a context where other people with similar power are using their power to kill, steal, and destroy. You follow me? It's just a dramatic contrast um, that, that stuck with me. How about you? How about me? What weapons are you carrying? And if that's, if that's what, what, what power source are you carrying? What abilities, what resources, what education, what skills, what influence, what power do you possess that could be used selfishly and destructively, or it could be used restoratively for healing? So what I'm seeing is our job, as our place in, in Isaiah's vision, is to work for the restoration of all things. And one, this means that we don't just lay down our weapons, we repurpose them. Uh, we turn them into forces for good, into tools for healing, into skills for providing and for protecting. Another way of seeing this is that we don't use our power to just defend ourselves. Or let me just get really specific. We don't use our money just to further pursue comforts and toys for ourselves. That maybe, you might argue that our culture, that's our biggest weapon. That's our most effective tool to use to change the world, is our access to just good old-fashioned money. So we don't use that just for ourselves, but we use our tool to provide for others. That's another way of looking at it. So that's number one. Number two, the second thing I want you to notice is the reason that those in Isaiah's vision can repurpose their weapons is because they don't need them anymore. They don't need them anymore. Nations are not training for war anymore. Tools of destruction have become obsolete. So they're looking at their swords and they're looking at their spears and they're like, uh, I don't need this. I don't need this anymore. Nobody uses this anymore. I, this, is not accomplishing, this is not accomplishing what I've been called to accomplish in this form. I can't use this anymore. It's an obsolete tool for, for what I've been called to live as and to, or who I've called to be in this world. I can't do what I'm supposed to do with this tool in this form. There's got to be an alternative use for this. We'll turn on the TV and it tells you, here's how you use your resources. And you're like, wait, there's got to be an alternative use for these resources if, if my goal is restoration and not just personal fulfillment, right? Why don't they need them anymore? Why don't they need the weapons anymore? Why can they repurpose them into something else? Why don't they need them anymore? Now we draw an arrow all the way back up to the top of your notes page because God's settling the disputes. Because God's settling the disputes. In other words, uh, peace has come to the earth. Right? Now here's where it's challenging for us. We are invited to live now according to the way it will be then. That's why it's challenging. Because this hasn't happened universally yet. But it has been made possible because Christ has come, Christ has conquered sin and death, and Christ has risen again from the dead. And so we, as the people of God, are called to live now as, as the way it will be then. We are called to usher in the kingdom, to live and to bring the peace of Christ, to say, I realize some people are still using this weapon for destruction. I, however, have a different vision, a different vision given by God. I see this use as obsolete. I will instead use this weapon in this alternative way to bring construction and restoration in these areas. You follow me? To give this world a glimpse of heaven on earth. That's why I would do this. To demonstrate not a countercultural perspective, but another cultural perspective. I'm going to bring a, a, an alternative 
way of living to this. I want to do whatever I can to use whatever power I have to bring peace to this world. Okay, that's the story. That's the story. That's what we need to come back around to at the end of a long season of trying to apply all this stuff to our life. The, the, the opportunity, the invitation is to come back to this story, this really crazy story about this most powerful thing coming as a baby. It's like, come back to that story to use your power as a tool for peace so that peace would come on the earth. Amen? Amen. I, I hope that you will rest in this, this Advent. I hope that you will allow it to do the work it needs to on you. I've been pushing you so hard. I've been pushing myself. Do the hard work. Work through your grief. And my invitation for you in the next four weeks is to let the story work on you. Rest in this story. Let the story remind you of the bigger picture, the origin, the new year. It begins here. Here's where it starts. Peace on earth. Goodwill toward men, right? We're not using our power to control. We're invited to use it to heal. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we really need your help because there's a thousand challenge, uh, challenges and there's all kinds of channels that come into our minds and our hearts and all kinds of warring perspectives and needs and opportunities and things that we surely we must want this. And so I just pray for the ability to quiet down that this season would be blessed with stability and security not that we get wooed into some sort of comfort, but so that we could have the time and space to just be with you and to receive this truth again in a fresh way. And I pray for those here who are grieving, who are facing deep division in their homes, who are being challenged by all kinds of, um, of, of realities. And I pray that this season, that they would experience above anything else, that they would experience the peace of Christ born again afresh in their lives. God, give us the grace we need to be the church in this world, to extend peace, to experience peace, and then to extend peace, a deeper peace, uh, to those around us. We love you, and we're so grateful that the story comes back to a story about your love for us, about your love for us, so as we receive this story in the next few weeks, God, fill us with your peace, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Would you stand up with me, friends? Let's take a minute. Greet one another this morning. This is so important that we do this. I know it's a real challenge for those of us who are introverts, but uh, this is so important. So, having received the assurance of peace being extended from God to you, would you now turn and extend that peace to somebody else through a handshake, a hug, uh, a word of welcome. May the peace of Christ be always with you. Thank you. Greet one another with the peace of Christ. We'll come back together in like two minutes. <laughs>